believer in Christ. However, he faced more tragedy in just a few short years than most of us will experience over the course of a lifetime. Somewhere around 1870, he watched his only son, his four-year-old boy, Horatio Jr., die tragically, slowly. Some say it was scarlet fever. Some say it was pneumonia. Either way, he was only four years old. That same year, the infamous Great Chicago Fire destroyed a large portion of his properties that he worked so hard to attain. That day, almost 300 people lost their lives, and around 100,000 were made homeless. But even though Horatio lost so much, he and his wife, Anna, looked to restore their neighbors' homes and properties in the name of Christ. They wanted to show the love of Christ to their neighborhood, even though they themselves lost so much. A few years later, in 1873, he sent his wife and four daughters to Europe for the summer to, 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 to take a break, to get away from it all, from all the tragedy that was surrounding this family. Uh, but due to his business, he didn't leave right away with them. He thought he would uh, uh, catch up to them later. But on the fourth day of their voyage to Europe, their ship collided with a large barge, and his four daughters died at sea. Almost all of the passengers were lost that day, but his wife, Anna, was found drifting, drifting on a plank, a piece of wood. After she was rescued, she sent her husband a telegram, and the telegram simply read, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately boarded a ship and, and headed to Europe to see his wife. As they were passing the area where his daughters were lost at sea, the captain called him over and said, said, here's where it happened. This is where we hit the barge and almost everybody was taken, including your daughters. As Horatio thought about his daughters and the faithfulness of Christ, words of comfort and hope filled his heart. And he wrote them down. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea, billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. A few days later, he wrote a letter to his sister-in-law saying, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, the water three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. And there, before very long, shall we be too. In the meantime, thanks to God, we have an opportunity to serve and praise him for his love and mercy to us and ours. I will praise him while I have my being. May we each one arise, leave all, and follow him. 
in our text for today, Jesus is leading us to an eternal truth that's meant to remove the anxiety that shakes unbelievers to their core. That same anxiety often causes them to make ungodly choices that usually makes their situation worse. But what we as believers have in Christ, the Apostle Paul said that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons can ever take away. And it's because of the relationship that we have in Christ Jesus, our Heavenly Father knows all that we need and provides. Unfortunately, in spite of our Father's great promises of provision, we are still prone to worry. Knowing this, in our text, Jesus repeats the promise of the Father's care for us in several ways. He supplies logical arguments <clears throat> and even gives illustrations that we're with to calm our hearts so that one day, one day perhaps, we will fully trust him. The question I have for you today is do you yet fully trust him? It's easy to trust him when life is smooth and everything is going according to plan. But when the wind and the waves come, when your life is shaken up a little bit, oh man, we're tempted to take a step out, outside of where God would, ha would have us walking straight according to his will, according to his purpose, loving when it's hard to love, forgiving when it's hard to forgive, doing the right thing. It's so hard to stay centered in the truth. It's so easy to step to the side where there's compromise. But when you fully trust him, you stand strong. You stay true. You continually show Christ at the hardest moments of your life. In verses 25 to 34 of Matthew uh, 6, Jesus gives us four commands and six reasons why we should trust our Heavenly Father. Of the four commands, three are in the negative. Do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And one is in the positive. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, all his righteousness. Now, as we have reached the, the, the midpoint of Jesus' great sermon on the mount, we'll explore some practical ways to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So my two points this morning are do not be anxious about today. And number two, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So let me read the text, pray, and then we'll explore. This is the holy word of God. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They uh, neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into, into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we thank you for this day. May we love you on this day. May we serve, and we know it is only by your, through your hearts, that it wouldn't be a fleeting word, but it would be a word that would stay with us, Lord God. Let us heed the words of your son and flee anxiety. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, do not be anxious about today. I remember listening to a lesson from David Paulison, biblical counselor extraordinaire, who has since passed away, but his, his lesson was on how to get to the root of what really causes anxiety in a person. He said, it takes having a good conversation about causality, agenda, and meaning. Causality, agenda, and meaning. Now, causality just means listening to a person to see when that person uses the word because. Now, for some of us, when we were children, <clears throat> that was one of our favorite words. It was one of our favorite words, right? When, it, when a parent or a teacher or any disciplinarian, guardian, whoever, would ask us certain questions because we're now in trouble, uh, that would be our first word. Michael, why are you in trouble? Because you're upset with me? Why am I upset with you? Because I hit Billy? Why did you hit Billy? Because Billy took my toy. Now we're getting somewhere. The issue becomes the idols of the heart. Now, the five-year-old won't understand that, but we do. We understand that if the thing I crave the most causes me to sin, our idolatry meter should be going off. Even if it's the thing that I didn't think I wanted that much, but if I can't attain it, what will I do to get it? Will I go against the law of God? Our idolatry meter should be going off. And we need to repent and turn and recognize that we can't serve that thing and serve the Lord at the same time. There's only one God, and your decisions in life will determine who your God is. To figure out why you suffer from so much anxiety starts right there. Right there. Why am I so anxious? What do you want? What do you expect from what you received? What is it that drives you? What is it that depresses you? Think about it and say, how come I'm not having that joy that Paul speaks about in the whole book of Philippians? How come I'm sad and I have so much sorrow? What are you craving? Is it God? What are you appreciating? Is it your salvation in Christ? What are you looking to day after day after day? 
Here's the thing. If it's not the Lord, 10,000 years from now, it won't matter. It won't matter. And you'll look back and say, why did I spend so much time trying to attain this thing, this it? Approval from someone that you know? Righteousness from someone that you know? What is it that's driving you? You'll find your answer. The agenda may be, your agenda may be, just to have a life that this world calls the good life. Right? According to what your family, your occupation, your education level, or, your, or the, deci- the society uh, determines is the good life. Do I have that? Because when I fail to reach those expectations, my anxiety begins to form. I can't sleep. I can't think straight. I can't make decisions. I question everything because I am not achieving the good life. Jesus gets to the meaning. Or what should be our purpose for living? And if it's not in line with God's agenda to seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness... Our purpose for living is shallow and meaningless because we have embraced a life of idolatry, not just making an an idolatrous decision here and there, but living a life that is controlled by my idols. So, of course, we're going to be anxious when our idols fail us, and they will. So in verse 25 of Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Why does he start this section by saying, therefore? Well, he just spoke on the futility of laying up treasures on earth And then gives us something to think about by emphatically stating no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then he said you cannot serve God and money. So the believer has two options. The unbeliever just has one option. They're going to serve the flesh. The believer has two options, right? But but, but here it is. One of his options is spiritual and the other fleshly. We can either store up treasures on earth and enjoy them for a season, knowing we'll be anxious battling the moths, the rust, and the thieves that Jesus just spoke of in the previous text, who constantly work to remove those earthly treasures. Or we can store up treasures in heaven where they are safe with God forever. There are so many ways we can lose earthly treasures treasure, it is amazing to me that we still do all we can to get more and more, to get more earthly uh, 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 treasures over and over. We fail to get happiness from those things, but we still seek those things with our whole heart. However, as we grow in the Lord, we get to this place, this higher level of Christian maturity Will we finally believe God knows best? Will we finally believe that all of my days were formed even before there was one of them? Psalm 139, 16. 
When we get to that place and we recognize that God is sovereign, I'd better start serving him according to his will, there's this peace that comes. There's this thing that you begin to walk confidently in Christ because your every decision isn't going to determine your every outcome. You recognize God is here and he says, follow me, and we go the other way, and God puts blockages in that way, and we turn around, and some of us it takes longer than others, but we end up where God said we need to be. It can be easy or it can be hard. We have to get this lesson and it's very important that we get it because what Jesus now does in this part of the sermon is, in his, his sermon, is move from the luxuries to the bare necessities. He said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And the word anxious here means to be troubled with cares. Cares, plural. It's when so many things are filling your heart and mind weighing you down that, like I said previously, you just don't know what to do or which way to turn, and your life becomes unfruitful in the eyes of God. And this is a serious condition. It's so serious that in the parable of the sower, when it came to the seed that was sown on thorny ground, Jesus said, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the term unfruitful there doesn't mean that as a Christian, you're just going through a season of unfruitfulness. No. Uh, this unfruitfulness is the opposite of the term Jesus uses in John 15 to describe a believer. Because in John 15, he said, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The believer bears much fruit because he abides in Christ. The unbeliever is unfruitful because rather than abiding in, in Christ, he's consumed with the cares of the world. Think about a grain of sand. A grain of sand is tiny, weighs almost nothing, but if you've ever been on the beach and you've had emulate from pouring our heart into this world creates the type of anxiety that has the same crippling effect. We're immobilized because we're all over the place. Every few years we're chasing, thinking this is it. This is going to do it for me. I'm going to be happy once I get this. Jesus is teaching us that we must get to this place where we truly trust God, our Father. When we came into the sanctuary this morning and we sat down, every one of us trusted that the pew would hold us up. We didn't do a full inspection to see if it was strong enough or if it was dry rotted. We sat down believing it would hold us up. Now, why is that? Experience. Many of us come week after week, month after month, and we sit in the same spot. It held us up last week. It will continue to hold us up. Now ask yourself, 
Why do those who trust God with an immovable and unshakable faith believe so strongly? How come they never seem to be upset like I get upset? Experience. Experience. They know God. And they have a real life experience of walking with God. Week after week. Month after month, year after year, they have experienced God's provision through the worst of circumstances. When death came to a loved one suddenly and the pain felt unbearable, God provided comfort and strength for them to pull through. When death uh, 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 seemed to be coming upon them and they couldn't move and they, they, they were wondering, how can I get through this? And day by day, they got better. And they got up, and they were able to go forth. They just praise God, and they draw from the past, and they know God is good. God is good. I did not deserve to get out of my bed again, because I know I'm a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. I should not have gotten up, but God got me up for his glory. And that strengthens them to go forward when someone they love decided to abandon them at their lowest point and they felt like life was over day after day, step by step. God carried them, comforted them in his bosom, led them by the hand, and they're stronger than they were back then. They're closer to the Lord now than they were back then. Asaph, the psalmist in Psalm 73, he testifies to this. He said, when my soul was embittered, that's a rough place to be. When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant, strong confession. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Asaph didn't say, I hold his right hand. He wasn't relying on his strength to hold on to God. He said, God was holding my right hand. Even while I was embittered in my soul, even when I was acting brutish towards him and I was ignorant, God still held my hand. So many people believe that your faith is because of your strength. No, we're fickle, we're feeble, we're weak. No. You can relate if you've ever walked a child across the street. You know you're not relying on that child to hold you. So you're holding him tight to make sure nothing happens to him. Well, God holds you tighter than all of you combined can hold on to any child. You have to believe that. If you don't believe that, as soon as something bad happens, you can walk out of here five minutes after the sermon and still be anxious. You could be sitting in your chair right now and the words are just going over your head, not my words, but scripture's word, and still be anxious right now where you sit, worrying what's going to happen tonight, tomorrow, next week. Missing what Jesus is saying. Trust him. Trust him. No one can, 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 can take you out of my hand. It may feel like it, but don't go on feeling. Hey, brutish. We can be ignorance of God's prom, uh, providence, 
but the grace of me. So when someone comes to you with a problem and you're saying, well, that's no big deal, but then they tell you how God delivered them from that problem, and you say, that's still no A brother in Christ was sharing with me a couple of weeks ago how he was on the phone with his doctor, and before he can get the address to the specialist that his doctor was referring him to, he hung up. And he began to get upset right there, agonizing over having to call the doctor again because he had to wait so long to get to the doctor in the first place. Hold, please. The doctor's with the patient. Hold, please. Just thinking about making this call and going through this 30-foot they need from day to day to get them from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday. Don't overlook that. Don't think you were just lucky. God cares and God provides, which means we have no need to be anxious. Jesus said, which one of us, by being anxious, can add a single hour to our lifespan? If we are seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, we are in step with the gospel and are in the exact place we need to be both spiritually and emotionally. This is the place where we can be experiencing the worst year of our life and still say, it is well. It is well. This is the place that Jesus is trying to get us to when he says, but seek first the kingdom. Now, some of us have no clue what it means to seek first the kingdom, so I want to quickly go over how to do this practically. How do we seek first the kingdom practically? Number one, to seek first the kingdom is to seek first the king. To seek first the kingdom is to seek first the king. How do we do that? By loving him as savior and friend, which means fully trusting him. He's the one who has chosen us redeemed us, and daily teaches us to trust him through his word and life experiences, the good and especially the bad, especially the, to, uh, the bad. To seek first the kingdom is to seek first the king. Why? Because he proved himself as your savior by dying for you and proves himself as your friend by living for you interceding for you, providing for you. Number two, to seek first the kingdom is to pray for his kingdom to come. To pray for his kingdom to come. Now, what does that do? It gets you in this mindset that this is not my home. I'm really praying for his kingdom to come. Why? Because the allure of this world has been fooling me for so long. I keep chasing after it, and it keeps letting me down because everything here is temporary. But the kingdom is eternal. The kingdom is eternal. One reason for our anxiety is because we're so wrapped up in this world that we hardly ever think about our real home, the eternal kingdom that is coming. Number three, to seek first the kingdom is to evangelize to the lost. To evangelize to the lost. 
that keeps you looking forward to Christ's return because you're telling someone they should receive Christ because this world is temporary and the Lord is coming back. And as you're speaking to them, you're, you're sharing the gospel with them, you are seeking first the kingdom. Our desire should be to make God's kingdom known in order that the king would be known throughout the earth. And number four, to seek first the kingdom is to submit to the king totally. To submit to the king totally. This means submitting to God's rule and reign through obedience no matter the cost. For example, a Christian retailer who seeks the kingdom first closes his store on Sunday even though staying open could bring him the highest profit of the week. Why would he do that? Because he would rather be obedient to the command from Hebrews 10.25 to not neglect meeting together with the saints as is the habit of some. He understands the importance of brothers and sisters encouraging one another, especially as he sees the day of Christ drawing near. He also allows his employees the opportunity to do the same. To seek first the kingdom is to submit to the king totally. And in that last one, I don't know about you, but I have uh, family members who say, well, Uncle Mike, brother, cousin, we don't have to go to church all the time. I can worship God right where I am. As if the command to gather together and encourage one another is this burden. No, it's a blessing. It's one of the graces that, that, that the Lord gives us that we may get out of this world's mindset and have one day to come together under the hearing of the word of God, under prayer, under fellowship, to get a chance to love one another, to see that you are not the crazy one. You stay away from believers and you keep those 168 hours secular, your language begins to change. Your thinking become, becomes worldly and you didn't even realize it because that's all you are used to. You need that one day to say, I am not by myself. I am not doing this alone. Praise God for that word. Praise God for the fellowship I had with this brother or sister. It was so good for my soul. Praise the Lord God for that day to come together as a family and serve him. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's saying we must dethrone our persistent pursuit of earthly success, wealth, and possessions as our chief aim in life. Instead, we are to hunger and thirst for the kingdom and his righteousness, making that our daily agenda and first priority. Jesus just told them, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, in verse 21. If your treasures are the unstable things of the world, your heart, meaning your, 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 your will, desire, and emotions, will stay right there. As I stated on last time, 
John Calvin's quote, wherever men imagine their greatest happiness to be, there they are surrounded and confined. I'll repeat what I said last time. To be surrounded and confined to things that perish with the using is a miserable deception originating from darkness. To be surrounded and confined to things that they're not going to last. But there you are. And you're looking at it as it deteriorates. And you're thinking, maybe if I get another one. And the same thing happens over and over and over. And next thing you know, 30, 40 years have passed. And you look back and say, what was I doing? What was I doing? So if you're seeking first the kingdom, earnestly praying for his kingdom to come, evangelizing the lost, or to the lost, and submitting to the king totally, you will not be anxious about today or tomorrow, which is my second and final point. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. In verse 34, Jesus said, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As the apostle Paul sat in a Roman prison. He wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. Now this church was not just another one of his church plants. It was the first town in Macedonia where he established this church. And in spite of his imprisonment, the dominant tone of his letter is one of joy. Many of us would be filled with anxiety if we were sitting in Rikers Island. But Paul wrote instructing the members of this church to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. That's how Paul could write this epistle with joy as the foundational thought. That's how he could also proclaim to them, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anxiety, panic, and worry are works of the flesh. But Paul determined to walk in the spirit, ongoing trials, one after the other, one after the other. But he said, where anxiety begins, faith ends. And where faith begins, anxiety ends. It has to. It has to. Faith says, I have no need to be anxious. Anxiety says, I have no faith. This can only be learned by having a constant dependence upon God, where every day you're seeking the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, we don't even have to worry about the necessities, the temporary necessities, by the way, like what we're going to wear. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And I can just picture him sitting on the mountainside. You have the disciples in front of him, a, a few of them, a couple of them, and then you have the multitudes and I can just picture him saying, consider the lilies of the field. Just look, just look at them. 
how beautiful they are. They don't have to knit, crochet, they don't have to sew anything, yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as these. If God, your ever-loving Father, takes time to clothe the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Where faith begins, anxiety ends. It's like, it's like an earthly father trying to console his child. And the child may be weeping uncontrollably because he believes that his father loves his friend Billy more than he loves him because of some kind act that his father did. And his father begins to comfort him. He kneels down next to him as Billy's about to go, as, as Jimmy's about to go to sleep. And he says, I'm not tucking him in right now. I'm, I'm tucking you in. I'm not making sure he has breakfast in the morning and dinner at night each and every day and night. But I'm making sure you never go hungry. I bought you that ball over there for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. One commentator wrote concerning these words, every day brings its own cares and to anticipate is only to double them. Martin Luther wrote, why wilt thou be concerned beyond today and take upon thyself the misfortunes of two days? Abide by that which today lies upon thee. Tomorrow the day will bring thee something else. I like that. I like that. Now, the King James Version uh, has this verse as sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And believe it or not, that's the more accurate uh, uh, rendering. Because the original word uh, for trouble here is kakaya and has as its first definition trouble that stems from evil. And for its secondary uh, uh, definition, it has wickedness. This tells us that Jesus is not just speaking of the, uh, what we would call the ordinary misfortunes and troubles of life. But he's speaking of the troubling evil that each day may bring. And that troubling evil is more than enough for the day without anticipating tomorrow's troubling evil. Sufficient for today is the troubling evil that we receive today. Don't worry about tomorrow's. That's going to handle itself. Just focus on today. Pray for God's help for today to get through in a way that honors him without compromise without unrighteous anger, without bitterness, and without anxiety. As we close our time together this morning, and you head back out to face the challenges from that troubling evil, I just want to say whenever you are having one of those days or months when life's pain and severe trials seem endless, know that God is there. Know that God is holding you by your right hand. And I, he didn't just say by your hand there. He said by your right hand, a picture of your strongest will, your strongest emotions, and your strongest desires. God is able to redirect that in a way that honors him. You look at your life and you say, I can't do it. Because you're looking at your life. You're not looking at God. 
You're not looking at the one who has brought you to this point. You're not looking at the one who said, I'm going to save him. I'm going to use him. I'm going to bring her to myself. I'm going to lift them up when they think they can't go any further. I'm going to grant them wisdom and endurance. I'm going to place a shield around them, and I'm going to keep them until I decide it's over. Until I decide they've learned this lesson. Until I decide now they're ready for this ministry, they're ready for this marriage, they're ready to go forth. But until that time, we serve him with faith, with his trust, with this realization that I can't do it. I have to give it to God. We have to look to Jesus, the Savior, and know the Father loves you. Look at the birds being fed. We can do that. We can look at the lilies in the field being clothed. We can do that and know God loves you so much more. He sacrificed his only son. And his son gave his life to save his people from their sins. For those who are not yet redeemed, born again, saved, and sanctified by the blood and imputed righteousness of Jesus, I implore you to turn to Christ while it is today. Tomorrow's not promised. Don't wait for something that isn't promised. So many people did not wake up today. We just take it for granted that we're going to keep waking up. We're just going to keep going about our business. We make plans as if tomorrow is guaranteed, but it is not. If you know you are not saved, please talk to someone and ask them, how can I be saved today? My prayer is that you will be able to sing alongside the believer with a firm and confident voice. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord God. You have delivered your people for a purpose. You have shown us great love when we didn't deserve it. You have brought us through many trials, many difficulties. Many times the, the road seemed blocked, but you made a way, Lord. Oh, Father, I pray that those who lack faith would trust your word, would look at the saints who are, who, are, who are still going forth with power. Lord God, I thank you for where you have brought us. You have brought us into the sanctuary, Lord, to hear the word. You have brought us so far, uh, from so far a place, Lord God, that I, I just pray that we would believe that you are faithful, that you will keep us. Lord God, may we realize that we have not brought ourselves to this place but it was by your hand. We didn't end up under the word of God by accident. We came under the word of God because you directed our footsteps and our word became a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In this dark world, it is so easy to get lost, but Christ is the light. And I thank you, Lord, for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.